Amen. You, you might already be at Matthew chapter 15, but go ahead, if you will, and turn there. We're going to get into the Word this morning, and what a great day it is that uh, we can study the Word of God, but also meet afterwards and have some time of fellowship and sharing and, and, uh, and just uh, relax as a body. Um, I also want this morning to recognize the parents of our Teen Challenge young men who come to our church faithfully every week. Parents, I guess it's Parents Weekend, and so, so many of the parents have come today. Uh, parents, would you stand for us that we can recognize you and thank you for being here? Amen. Awesome. That's great. And, and they're coming from all over. I, I'm not sure where you folks are from, but I know some live in the Northeast. I, we were having breakfast yesterday morning with my parents, and uh, uh, Judah, where's Judah? Judah, wait, wave for me. There he is. Judah, his parents were in town uh, from, is it, where, Judah? N- N- Buffalo, New York. And so they had to fly back yesterday, but they spent a day with their son and it was great to meet them. So we're just glad that all of you are here. Thank you for being part of our service today. And I think some of you have shared with me that you even uh, watch us live stream from, from your home. And so we're glad to have you. Uh, we're going to pray. Let's pray that God would really open the word to us this morning. I'm, I'm really, honestly, just still uh, moved by the worship time this morning. Hmm. I'll start with man and just say how thankful I am for the skilled uh, servants that help us with worship. Those who sing, those who play instrument. Thank you so much for your dedicating a God-given gift to the Lord's work. And we're, we're benefiting from it. But I have to say that, boy, those songs, uh, you've already heard the gospel today. You've already heard it. We are singing songs that truly lift up the name of Jesus, but more than just his name, his work, the work that he did on the cross for us. And so it's very possible, very likely, that a person coming to service could actually be saved during the worship time as they listen to the words and they receive in their heart by faith Christ. And I just think that's awesome. So... Uh, Let's pray. Lord, as we now open the word, may it come alive. It's a living word, and it never changes. It's not like it's a living word that changes from the day to day, or it changes in relationship to the culture that we're living in. This is a word that never changes and the scripture says, we'll stand forever. And so, Lord, as a church family, we're not driven by the culture. We're not fearful of cancel culture. We are driven by the word of the living God. We are driven by the desire to be faithful to your word, to one day stand before you and give evidence, give account for how we lived our lives by the truth that's found in these pages. And so, Lord, we ask that you would minister to each person here in a very unique and special way today. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Well, verse 1 in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, we've been in this study now since September, and, and uh, Jesus had, if you know from last chapter, uh, he was ministering on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee at its widest is about eight miles wide, and he leaves one side, the east side of the lake, and he goes to the west side, or the northwest side, of the lake, and when he gets out of the boat, there are 5,000 men, and then including children, or plus children and women, and he teaches them and then he feeds them the feeding of the 5,000, which really is more than 5,000. And then uh, after that teaching, he, he confronts the, uh, uh, the issues of, of, of the crowd and the things that they're dealing with, and then he travels and he he goes out of the land of the Jews. He literally leaves the region where the Jews lived. And that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. It says, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, now he's still in the northern part of the of Galilee. Okay, he's up in the Capernaum area. And these guys had come a long way, these Pharisees from Jerusalem, believe me. That's a week's journey. So if they've come a week's journey to see Jesus, they must have some pretty important things to talk to him about. And it says, and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice they didn't say the tradition of Scripture, capital S, or of the law of God, the Mosaic law, but of the elders, the traditions of men. Now, the the Jews had the written law, obviously, But on top of that, they also had the oral traditions of men, things that had been passed down from generation to generation that they just practiced as Jews. These oral traditions many times actually superseded the law of God. They were so quick to practice their own traditions and even forget about God's commandments. Uh, And and by the way, traditions have a way of doing that. They, They kind of embed themselves in us to where it's harder to break a tradition than almost anything else. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was a boy, we had what they called Sunday night church. How many of you remember uh, Sunday night church? You, okay, you're, giving, you're dating yourself. You do know that. Okay, you're older. Uh, Sunday night church. And then, of course, churches stopped having Sunday night church. And, and I can remember when we stopped Sunday night church, and we had reasons for doing so. Um, but I, I ran into some of this. Uh, I had one gentleman, he said to me, Pastor, thank you so much for stopping Sunday night church. I said, why? He said, because I was raised. My tradition in my home was that if the doors of the church are open, I have to be there. <laughs> so he's like, thank you. I don't have to go back on Sunday night. You know. So really, what meaning and purpose did church have for him? I guess it was a backhanded compliment to the pastor, too. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we got rid of Sunday night church. But, that, but let me tell you something. That's, that's not necessarily easy to give up. Many people struggled when we did that. Even though we had increased meeting in, in homes with small groups, but they were still concerned about Sunday night church. So you guys understand. Some of you have even been there. Uh, this couldn't be said of Jesus that he was more caught up in the traditions of man than Scripture. And I think we need to be very careful. An example of the Jews in that day, what they had was the Talmud, 
which was several volumes of amplification of, and, and explanation of the law of God. It wasn't the law of God, it's, it's their commentary on the law of God. It's all the extracurricular levels of religious rules and regulations, much like the Mishnah. And so, so these guys were caught up in that stuff. And it, it all adds up to something, but it doesn't add up to the word of God. And that's the problem. Now, verse 2, why do your disciples break the traditions of elders? For they, here it is, here's what they're coming, here's what they're traveling a week's journey to tell Jesus. Your, your disciples do not wash their hands when they eat. We're going to be eating food in just a little while. I'm going to show you how in the Jewish man-made tradition you are to cleanse yourself before you take bread, okay? Now, from this, don't immediately conclude that the disciples are filthy animals and they never wash their hands. This accusation isn't about hygiene. It's not about soap and water. It's about water. It's about the Pharisees and scribes are speaking of being ceremonial they're, they're ceremonially unclean. If you're found to be, a, be ceremonial unclean, then you're not allowed to enter the temple for the worship of God. They tied this ceremonial cleansing to the worship of God. They had developed a whole list of things that could make you ceremonially unclean. These ridiculous regulations that had to be followed made about as much sense as the rules of a homeowner association. And uh, those of you who lived in a gated community know exactly what I'm talking about. If you touched anything unclean, you become unclean. If you touched anything that was touched by something that was unclean or someone that was unclean, you became unclean. To the, gen to the Jews, the Gentiles were all unclean. So if you were, let me tell you to the degree they carried this out, they saw the Gentiles as unclean. They were clean, but the Gentiles are unclean. And they carried it out this way. That if you were walking down a street and a Gentile walked on the dirt, the dust, and you walk on the same dust, you became unclean. Because the dust became unclean by the Gentile walking on it. So you don't want to walk in the dust of the Gentile. Now, you could walk in the dust of a rabbi. In fact, that was a phrase that meant if you were a young boy and you were studying under Gamaliel, I'm walking in the dust of Gamaliel, that meant that you were literally under the tutelage of that particular great rabbi. You wanted to walk in the dust of the rabbi because he's clean. He's ceremonially clean, but not the, not the Gentiles. Stay away from them stinking Gentiles. By the way, you and I are Gentiles. Just, just wanted to point that out to you. Uh, there were certain foods that if you ate them, uh, you, they would make you unclean. You're not going to have any pork today if you're trying to stay ceremonially clean. You're not going to enjoy some, you know, uh, shrimp and lobster. No oysters. No scallops. None of the good stuff. Because you're not ceremonially clean if you eat that stuff. So how did you wash your hands to make yourself clean from all these iniquities or all these, these things that would make you unclean, un, unholy to worship God. See, it's all about presenting yourself holy before God. Not about hygiene, but about ceremonial cleansing. So here's what they would do. Before a Jew 
would take bread, and they still do to this day, the Orthodox Jews. In fact, they do it before, before bread, they do it before prayer, they do it in the morning when they wake up, but they take a cup that has two, literally two handles on it, and they fill the cup, and then they take the cup, and they cup their hand like this, like you're holding something, like a bar of soap, which they don't have in their hand, but they, they take it and they pour the water. They have to keep their arm in such a, in such a uh, position that the water won't run down their arm. So they have to keep it like this, just bent down a little bit. And they pour the water, half of it, so that it drips and goes no further than the wrist. And then they do the other hand. And then they repeat the steps and do it twice. And then to wash, of course, you're not going to do this because the water will run down. Now you're, now that water that's running off of you, removing the ceremonial uh, uncleanliness, is now going to run into your arm. Now your arm's unclean. So you keep it until, and then you take a towel, and then you wipe your, your hands. And now you're ceremonially clean. Now you can take bread. Now you can pray. Now you can rise in the morning. This was their practice. This is what they did. This was a man-made tradition. It is not in the Bible for them to do this. You see, when you, when you get away from the truth of Scripture, which, by the way, they could never live the Old Testament law of God. No matter how hard they tried, they failed. That's just the reality of it. So the next best thing is create the laws that we can keep and feel good about ourselves, and feel righteous, even though we're not righteous in God's sight, but we'll feel like we're righteous, and we'll live out our, our religion of righteousness. That's what they were doing. And so they came all the way, a, day, a week's journey from Jerusalem to ask Jesus, your disciples aren't following the traditions, never mind the fact that there's nothing in the Bible about it. So verse 3, and he answered them, this is the response Jesus gives to these Pharisees, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Oh, man, he's hitting hard here. By making people go through these trivial little rituals, they were actually hindering people from having access to worship God at temple. To think that you could possibly not be allowed to worship God because you didn't follow a man-made tradition. That is a serious offense to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on all of our sin, all of our uncleanness. He paid the ultimate price as the sacrifice, the lamb of God slain for from the foundation of the world for the sins of all men. What more can we do to try to symbol, symbolically, ceremonially cleanse ourselves? There's nothing else necessary. You are clean in Christ Jesus. If he is your Lord, you are clean. You can worship God. You don't have to jump through any hoops of man to worship God. Yet, I wonder if there are some traditions of man that we practice that actually hinder people who come to our church from worshiping God. You say, God forbid, Pastor, that that would happen. It can. Let's not act so holy. It can, and sometimes we're the culprit behind it. Have you ever heard the phrase, cleanliness is next to? Where is that in the Bible? Now, that's not, a, that's, not, that's not an excuse so you can just, you know, come to church looking like a slob for when you can actually dress nicer, okay? But, but what about the person who comes to worship here? 
who their clothing is tattered. They come in and they've got unwrinkled shirt, you know, they've got dirty clothes. Do we give them a certain look that we don't give others? Do we keep our eyes on them as if we got to watch them closely? And when they see that, when they see our reaction, that we're not receiving them in the house of the Lord for worship of God, does that not in itself cause them to think, maybe I don't fit here? Maybe my worship of God doesn't work here? We don't know their story. We don't know why they are the way they are, but we measure it out. We judge. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's amazing how those uh, traditions of man can even slip into today's church. Is it in the Bible? No, it is not. Oops. What about passing an offering plate or an offering bag as an act of worship in our giving? We used to do that in churches that I pastored, and I finally I, I began to hear word from those who were counting the money. They said, Pastor, there are people who are putting in envelopes that have nothing in them. When we pass an offering plate, it's going down the row. It's actually possibly causing someone who did not come prepared to give, or they cannot And it's causing them to feel pressure to give. And so what do they do when they don't have money to put in? Or they don't want to put money in. But they don't also want to be seen as not participating. So under pressure, they put an envelope in. That hinders true worship. The act of giving is worship. You do know that. Those who give, hopefully you do it as an act of worship to God. It's not a... A, a, you know, a routine, a duty. It's not obligatory. It's, it's my way of worshiping God. But it never in Scripture was to be made public where we show off. In fact, Jesus addressed that matter with the Pharisees who would clank their coins in the trumpet that, that would be hanging on the wall. They, they would clank their coins in it, drawing attention to their giving. But then the little woman, the little widow with a mite comes up and drops what she has, which is nothing. And Jesus said she just gave so much more than they ever could give. They did it for show. She did it as a form of worship to God. We should never measure people or put people under pressure where their worship of God is hindered by our activity. Something to consider as a church family. That's why we just have a box. If the Lord moves you to walk over on your own and put something in the box, that's between you and the Lord. Or you can give online. Nobody sees that. That's between you and the Lord. It's truly an act of worship for you then, right? Don't be the person who walks over and brings nothing but coins in a big clanky brass container, and you stand over there and start dumping a little at a time. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, i got so many coins today. I don't know what to do about this. We, we don't want to follow the traditions of man. For God commanded, verse 4, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what, what you would have gained from me is given to God. <laughs> 
He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, the Bible says you were not <laughs> to curse your parents. The Bible does say that, okay? That's a commandment. You're, not, you're to honor them, not curse them. But the religious hypocrites had this tradition that if you preface your curse by saying, look, I'm sharing this for you for your good, for your benefit, you lousy, stinking scoundrel, you could then cuss them out. As long as you preface it with, I'm sharing this as a benefit to you. See, they found a way around the system of cursing. That was what they did. So here Jesus points out that through their tradition, they have actually made allowance for a violation of the commandment of God. So he says, so for the, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. When you went around the law, you just voided out the law. Verse 7, now he just lays them out, fillets them like a turkey on Thanksgiving Day. You hypocrites. He's strong in his response because these leaders were far too concerned with ceremonial trivialities. When they declared people unclean because of their tradition, they were actually denying the people who were coming, trying to worship. They were denying them access to God. And that's not a little thing, folks. We at Bureau Bible Fellowship take the worship of God very seriously. That's why we gather. That is the, that is the essence of coming together as the church is to worship God. All, everything else is an accompaniment. But the worship of God is the centerpiece. Nothing that we do should hinder people from that one thing. Okay, that, that's the most important thing. I knew a pastor who one time, they were so, so um, predic their worship was predicated on these big video shows. They would do these videos in the sermon and all this just graphic stuff that they would do. And, and then one Sunday, the, the city announced, or one, one week, the city announced that on Sunday morning, we're going to be literally cutting off the, the power grid for about an hour while we do some work. Well, the church staff met that week, and they learned that, and they were like, oh, my goodness. And the pastor literally said from his mouth, we can't do church if we don't have power. That's not... Because he's saying, that's who we are. We're videos, we're graphics, we're electronics. That's us. We can't do church if we don't have power. Really? That's going to hinder the worship of God? I don't think so. Worship is to be simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. It can happen anywhere at any time. It can happen in a cafeteria that we turn into a chapelteria. Without lights, without smoke, without all the accompaniments that we, people see in worship services, without the beauty of a sanctuary. Look at on the wall, Storm Grove, an A-plus school, go Stingrays, my favorite, Miami Hurricanes, praise God. I knew this was a place that God wanted us to meet when I saw that. Anyway, but that stuff doesn't keep us from the worship of God. That's not why we're here, right? We're here for a simple and pure devotion to Christ, each of us from our hearts. This is what Jesus is addressing. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It would do you and, you and I well to think personally instead of thinking about the Pharisees. We can appear to draw near to God all the while having in our hearts 
this distance from God. We're far from him. It's easy to want and be impressed by the image of being near to God without really doing it in our hearts. Come to church, look the part, sing the songs, say the words, and yet the rest of the week in our heart, and even while we're at church, our heart's far from him. This is what Jesus is addressing with the Pharisees. He said, your teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. In other words, you've elevated your own traditions to an equal level with God's inspired word because you can't and won't recognize, you can't live up to the word. And I've come to fulfill the word for you. But you don't want that. You just went ahead and made your own laws so you can feel good about your, your hard, cold heart. Another tradition that we need to be careful of lent lent in itself is lent wrong no of course not anything that raises my my understanding and elevates my desire for uh, understanding the resurrected christ and preparing for easter and celebrating christ in his resurrection how can that be bad but when lent takes on more than just a way to point me to the resurrected Christ, and it becomes something that I, I must do. If I don't do Lent, oh my goodness, you, you're not practicing Lent? Now, all of a sudden, a tradition of man has elevated itself above the Word of God. Now you've made the, the Word void. Be careful. Verse 10, and he called the people to, him, to himself, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So having dealt with the religious leaders, now Jesus turns to instruct the common people. He just directly confronted them big time, and they got sideways over it. Now he turns to the people, and he talks about authentic worship, what real godliness is. It has nothing to do with the ceremonial cleansing of your hands. Jesus stated a fundamental principle, eating with unclean hands is not what defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Why? Because it came from your heart, and your heart is wicked and evil and deceitful above all things. The scripture says, who can possibly know the heart of man? This is not to say that there aren't defiling things that we can take into our bodies. Sure there are, but that Jesus isn't addressing general things. He's addressing ceremonial cleansing. And so he addresses very clearly that in the new covenant, all food will be declared acceptable. Peter experienced that in Acts chapter 10 when he had a vision and he saw all these different kinds of animals coming down on a sheet and God said, take and eat. And he's like, oh, those are unclean. He said, no, what I tell you is you can eat, you can eat. Praise God. You can have a big old pork chop if you want. You can go to Sonny's Barbecue. Not today. You're going to be out here. But you can go to these wonderful restaurants and have all this food that in the Old Testament they could never enjoy. Why? Because, because Christ has cleansed our heart. Now the new covenant allows us freedom in Christ. So enjoy some shrimp and lobster. These Old Testament food laws have been abolished under the new covenant with Christ. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. So Jesus just again goes back to what we studied before. 
that in the world, the Father has brought up wheat. You and I, are, those of us who are saved, we're wheat that God has, is bringing up. But Satan has gone and planted weeds among the wheat. And that's what he's addressing here. These guys are weeds. These guys don't have a desire to follow God, to, to truly They certainly didn't receive Christ. The Jews rejected him as a whole. And so here he is. He's trying to connect them back to the fact that God is for them, not against them. And yet there are those who are planted among the righteous that are not for God, and God is not for them. And so he calls it out there. Uh, let them alone. He says, leave them alone. Don't worry about trying to deal with the weeds in the world. Don't try to argue with the weeds. Just leave it alone. Now, share the gospel. Throw the seed even where people who are unsaved can, can hear the gospel. But if they don't receive it, don't get into an argument with them. It's not worth it. Just don't do it. And Jesus said, and at the end, when I return, I will separate. I'll personally separate the wheat from the weeds. He's going to do the separating. So it's not your place to play God. It's your place to simply be faithful to throw the seed of the word so that wheat can come up. Amen? And you don't know when that weed actually becomes wheat. You don't know. I don't know. I had no clue when or how or if. That's why it's just faith. we need to be faithful to throw the seed. Just keep throwing it. Throw it, throw it, throw it. Keep sharing the good news of Christ. Keep loving people with the gospel of Christ. And let God do his work. Look at verse 14. Let them alone, Jesus said. Why? Because they're blind guides. He's describing lost people here. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you what Jesus just said about you. If you have not received him as your personal Savior... He said, you are blind. And whatever you're following, whatever, wherever you've gained your understanding of life and this and that and whatever university and whoever professor and whatever book you've read, he says they're blind guides. You're blind and you're following blind guides. But your arrogance and your intellectual, you're, you're so given to intellectual assent, you can't see the truth. You won't see the truth unless God opens the, the door, unless God turns the light on for you. And that's why some of us have family members and friends that have rejected Christ, and maybe they're given to some other type of teaching or belief system, whatever, and they mock you, they laugh at you. I'm just telling you, keep throwing the seed lovingly. You don't know when God's going to turn the lights on in their house. And all of a sudden they go, you're kidding me. I think of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an editor for the uh, Chicago Tribune, big-time uh, atheist. And he went to, to, to do a research and, and present an article on Jesus Christ. He did not believe Jesus Christ was God. And he went and did all of his research, and the more research he did, and kept researching and researching, and this man became a follower of Jesus Christ. The light came on. And that atheist became a Christian. And he's written many books, by the way, A Case for Faith, A Case for Christ. You can pick those books up if you're interested in learning more about Jesus Christ. But that's what we're talking about here. Keep throwing the seed. Let God do the work in the hearts of those that we love and even those that we don't know. Keep sharing your faith with them.
And he said in verse 16, and he said, are you still without understanding? Because they, they said, please explain to us, explain to us what it means that you're talking about, this fact that they're blind guides and the blind lead the blind, and that they both, you know, if a blind man leads a blind man, they're going to both fall into a pit because neither one can see, right? So the disciples are like, explain that to us. And Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, not the food going in your body. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. These things didn't start on the outside and come into you. They started inside of you and come out. It's, our, it's out of the mouth that we see hatred and bitterness and lustful thoughts and desires. These are the things that are in the heart, the things expressed by the mouth many times. They are the true defilement of a man. These evil things come from our innermost nature. That's why the Bible teaches. The, the gospel is not just the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the bad news of man. That's part of the gospel. Why do you need good news about Jesus if you don't recognize that you're a sinner beyond salvation, that you yourself are, have been defiled through the sin of Adam, and you yourself have committed acts of sin? Therefore, you do not, you're not worthy of salvation. And there's nothing you can do in and of yourself in this world that can save you before a perfect, holy God. The only thing that you can do is place your trust in Jesus Christ, the, who, is, who is God, who, the second person of the Trinity who created all things and in him all things hold together. He's the one who came to earth, incarnate man. And he's the one who died on the cross, who lived a perfect life and died for you so that you might put your faith and your trust in him. He atones for your sins. He is the substitute for your death on the cross before holy God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all it takes is to recognize that you in your own flesh, in your human nature, are sinful. Your heart is sinful. And you need God. The worst the, the toughest person to try to save is not the person who's gone out and out of their own evil heart, they know they're evil and they've done evil things. No, it's the person who thinks they're good, who doesn't think they have an evil heart. They think they're good enough. Well, let's see how that works when God returns. Jesus said, many of you will say to me, Lord, did I not cast out demons, do many miracles in your name? And I'll say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. See, the law said that you're a sinner. That's what the law was given in the Old Testament for, to announce to us that we are sinners, that we can't be holy. And then the law points us to Jesus, who is able to be holy and fulfill the law. He did fulfill the law. He went to the cross. God poured out on Christ all the sins of mankind. He poured on Jesus. Jesus took it on himself. And he died there. God showed his anger and his wrath to Jesus, not you and I. And he put him to death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. So that you wouldn't have to. So that you could just simply place by faith your trust in God through Christ and be saved. Oh, what a marvelous gospel. It starts with the bad news that I'm lost by myself and I can't do anything about it. 
in this world, and one day I'll stand before God, and I might, if I have not received Christ, I will face the ultimate rejection. But it gets so good that I don't have that fear of any ultimate rejection when I stand before Christ. Why? Because Christ himself died for me, and I have received it by faith, and God has put inside of me the Holy Spirit as a pledge, a promise. I'm saved now. Are you saved? Have you come to to God through Jesus Christ or through some man-made tradition? Yeah, I go to church with my wife. I'm faithful to go to church. Yeah, I do good things. I've, I, I, you ought to see our tax return. You know, we, we, we make donations to different organizations that need help with this and that. We, we give a lot of money. Yeah, we're good people. That'll land you in hell. Well, no, we're, we, you know, we go to church. I, I, you know, Pastor Greg, I've said unto you for 15 years, I've got notebooks filled with notes from the sermons that you preached and the notes that I've taken. You can bust hell wide open with that stuff. He'll make kindling wood out of all those pages. It's not about what you know. It's about what you receive by faith that saves you. Amen? See, there's no boasting in salvation from God's view. For man to, to claim that he's saved and he points to his good works, he points to his acts of kindness, he points to the reputation he has in the community, that's all works. That's all you talking about it. No, no. The only way you can be saved is if you have nothing to say except, I'm a sinner. But Jesus Christ died for me. So you make it about him. Jesus said this. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. If I be lifted up, not man, not works, me. Lift up Jesus. That's how you come to Christ. Amen? So it's not the things that you put into your body that defile you. It's the stuff that's coming out from the heart, which is already evil and deceitful. And verse 21, this is interesting now. So Jesus has been with the Jews. He's, he's performed miracles. He's done all these wonderful things. He's given great teachings. He's even made some personal teachings with his disciples. And he's been confronted by the Pharisees who came a week's journey just to ask him some silly, stupid questions. And he fought all that stuff off. Now look what he says, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That would be on the coast. He's leaving the inland and he's heading east for the coast. And I'm sorry, west for the coast. And when he gets to the west, he's now, he's now no longer in the land of the Jews. Now he's in the land of Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. Okay, now this is really interesting. So Christ is traveling to the coast. He's going to travel some 50 miles. If he's going to Tyre and Sidon, that's 50 miles from where he was at. And he went all this way to meet one Gentile woman. This passage we're about to read, this story has been so misunderstood. And I want to hope to bring clarity in a short amount of time on this story. But he's traveling 50 miles out of his way to go see a Gentile woman. She's not even Jewish. And, and, and what a remarkable and unexpected love that Jesus is going to show this Gentile woman. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So here's this Gentile woman 
who's got a daughter that's demon-possessed, and she's crying out to Jesus for help. Interestingly, Jesus has spent so much time among his own, and they didn't grasp what he was saying. Yet this woman, this Gentile woman, who wasn't there to see his healings, who wasn't there to be fed along with the 5,000, she probably hasn't even heard that stuff yet. But look at this. This woman recognizes Jesus for who he is. She knows who he is. This is the Son of God. She knows. The Jews couldn't recognize him, but this woman does. But he did not answer her a word. Silence. She's asking for help, and he's silent. But evidently, she didn't stay silent, because his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. She's being persistent with this cry for help, Lord. Please, just send her away. And he answered, this is what he says now. I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I came to save the Jews. But the Jews have rejected him. He's defined here in this verse his focus of ministry. And his irritated disciples are wanting this woman to go away. And Jesus made it clear that he's not here for the Gentiles like her. This begins to look like Jesus is really being harsh and being cold-hearted towards this Gentile woman. It gets worse. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, to the dogs. I'm not going to take the bread for the children. Who are the children? The children of God. Who are they? The Jews. I'm not going to take the bread for the, for the Jews and give it to the Gentiles. And she said, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, as we read the translation of this text, we have difficulty understanding why Jesus appears to be treating this woman in a cold and almost insulting manner. But remember this. Let's, let's put some context. See, if you read the text without the context, you'll come up with usually the wrong solution or the wrong uh, exposition. Let's look at this. First of all, remember Jesus left the region of the Jews to go into the region of the Gentiles. Secondly, also remember that he knew before he got there he was going to heal this woman's daughter. You say, well, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah, it does. It says God has foreknowledge. Jesus knows ahead of time before he does what he's going to do. He knows ahead of time what you're going to do before you do it. He would make a phenomenal gambler. He'd never lose. So Jesus knew he was going to heal the, the daughter of the woman. He knew that, that what was in the heart of this woman was something that, was, that he wanted others to see like you and I, like his disciples. She is so persistent. His first rebuff of her was silence, and then he didn't answer her. But, but then she was undeterred. She kept coming after him, pursuing him. And she was so persistent that the disciples were bothered by her constant bellyaching about her child. And Jesus continues to draw her out. Notice this. It isn't right to take the children's bread. I came for Israel. It isn't right to take what was for them and cast it to you. And But here's where we really have to be careful because on the surface, man, it looks really harsh. 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That Gentiles are dogs. Well, understand what Jesus is saying. First of all, he's speaking in a vernacular and in a way that these people in that time would understand. And what's interesting, uh, to the Jew, Gentiles were dogs. That's slang. That's actually a curse word. Um, By the way, there are no curse words in the Hebrew language. An Orthodox Jew cannot cuss with his, in his own tongue. He literally has to speak English to cuss. We've got plenty of cuss words. The Hebrew doesn't have any cuss words. And back in that day, you would say, if you were speaking of a Gentile, you called him a dog. A Gentile dog. It's slang. Filthy, dirty, voracious people, you know. Stay away from them. But then there's another Greek word for dog. There's two, actually two Greek words. The second Greek word for dog is a little puppy, which was usually around the table as the children were eating. And kids back then, they didn't use silverware. You ate with your fingers. When I traveled to India, spent uh, 17 days in northern India, um, man, I got really good at it. You know, you, you ball up your doll and your rice and then you, you, you ball it up, and then you, you, take, you put a little bit on your finger, and you put your thumb behind, and you push it into your mouth. And you always do it with your right hand. And I'll tell you later if you want to know why. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, that's what children would do. They would eat with their hand. And guess what they would do? If they had a little puppy, they just lower their hand down and feed the little puppy. he gets get some scraps or they'd push it off to the puppy. This was very common, very common. So Jesus' response is, aha, all right then, now that you're saying that even the dogs, the little puppies, I mean, Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to feed the puppies. I'm here for the Jews. Yeah, but even little puppies need food. Ah, This woman has more faith than even the Jew. And Jesus heals her daughter. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down. And there great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. And so the crowd, that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, look what the crowd does. By the way, this is not a Jewish crowd. He's still in the region of the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles, look what it says, they glorified the God of Israel. He's not our God, but we're going to glorify him because we just saw his acts, his works. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. These Gentiles will not go home. They don't want to miss what I'm doing and what I'm saying. They, they actually get me. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on their way. Three days without food. That's how hungry they were for God. When I was pastoring in Palm Beach Gardens, we had a ministry out of our church, literally out of our church. It was a missions ministry that one of our members, one of our elders started called Missions 
Resource International. And what we did was provide the Bible in languages and, and cassette tape. And we literally, we took these uh, little, remember the old cassette players, the little portable cassette player batteries or with, uh, these didn't have the battery and they didn't have an AC cord. They had a crank. Literally, you put the Bible uh, scripture on cassette on this, and you just sit and do this, and you're listening. And we were sending these out all over the world. And it, it was amazing. We had, we had missionaries visiting these little camps, these little tribes. We've got video of a people sitting around the campfire at night, and somebody doing this, and they're listening in their own language, the Word of God. It's amazing. Amazing. And here we see Jesus. He's with a people that are so hungry for spiritual truth that they deny their physical hunger. And he said, I'm not going to send them away. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish, which was a common meal. That was it. That's what you ate. And having given thanks, he broke and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples, or actually the disciples said, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such, such a great crowd? Now, wait a minute. They just fed 5,000. And the disciples are asking this again? They're just like us. We so quickly forget to walk by faith, don't we? But in their behalf, this is to a bunch of Gentiles. So I could see where the disciples are like, okay, well, you did that for the Jews. You're not going to do that for the Gentiles. So where are we going to get the food to feed them? Okay? And Jesus distributes the food to the crowd. Gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Verse 37, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. Some people have tried to make this story parallel or line up with the other story as if they're one story just told different with different numbers and stuff it's not true there, there are several things that distinguish these stories first of all th there's a difference in the number of those being fed there's also a difference in location one was being fed on the northern shore of the sea of galilee this one is fed on the e on the northwest shore or northeast shore and the other one's fed on the west shore okay then there's different seasons of the year in this story, there's no mention of grass. So it's probably a different season completely. There's a different supply of the food, the amount of food. And then there's a different period of time of waiting for the people. When Jesus was with the Jews, they had just spent a whole day with him, and then he fed them. It was too late to go to town and get food, so he fed them. But with the Gentiles, they stayed three days, and then he fed them. Verse 39, and we close it with this, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Mag Magadan, or Magdala is what it's called today as a ruin that's found. Still, you can go to Magdala. Uh, you ever heard the name Mary of Magdala? Mary Magdalene? That's where she's from. And so we're going to see some other things next week as Jesus continues in this ministry. But know this, with every time that the Pharisees come and, and try to trap him and try to figure him out in order to what? Eventually, they're going to come to a point where they say, let's put him on the cross. So Jesus is, even though he's doing these wonderful things for people, ministering to the crowds, he's 
already in his mind, he has the cross in mind. He knows where he's heading. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had to think of that cross every day, I'm sure. And so we're moving towards that. Lord, today we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for our time in it. We want to thank you that maybe it's spoken to us. And each one of us are unique to you. Each one of us are being spoken to by the Holy Spirit in a very different way. No two people are alike, and the Spirit speaks uniquely to both. And so, uh, for some, Lord, we are still hanging back there looking at the traditions of man that maybe we have followed to the point that we've made it a law, and it's not. And it has replaced for us the law of God, which is the new covenant law, which is freedom in Christ. For others, Lord, we've, we're like the woman. We don't think we're worthy, or we don't think we fit, but we do fit. And she just kept right on asking, may we never stop pursuing you, Lord. May we never stop praying and bringing before you our needs and know that ultimately you're a God who answers prayer, but you're also more than that. You're a God that desires to be worshipped. And whatever our background is, whatever we've done, whatever we, uh, however we look or how we speak, Lord, none of that hinders you from ministry to us. You love everybody. Lord, uh, also... We're convicted this morning as we think about the Gentiles who when you came into their midst, they were willing to stay three days in your presence without food just so they didn't miss anything that you did or said. Father, that's convicting to us. May you strengthen our faith and put a fire in our bellies that we would desire you more than anything and we would hunger and thirst after you, knowing that Jesus said, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me and I'll give you a drink. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Oh God, thank you that the Holy Spirit resides in us and he wants to ippy us. He wants to overflow us. That he wants to well up inside and then just overflow and let the love of Christ flow from us into the lives of others. That's what we pray this week. Make us witnesses for Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, as, as every week, we're faithful to have prayer partners and elders who will be more than happy to pray with you over any matter that you're facing in life. Jesus took time to minister to people, and he's given us ministry in his name. And we're here to pray with people. So if you'd like to come and receive some help or praying for someone and have agreement over that, we're, we're here. If this morning you have come to understand who Jesus Christ is and you've reached out to him by faith, listen, the fact that you reached out by faith, that you recognize you're a sinner and you reach out, that's salvation. And with that salvation, I want you to go to the table in the back and give us your name so we can follow up this week and, and uh, give you some material some, uh, that'll just help you in your newfound faith and growing in Christ. 
I also want to tell you, uh, parents, you're here, and some of you have been tuning in each week. We have these uh, uh, prayer journals for the book of Matthew, and they're in the back, and if you want to leave a donation, you can, but you don't have to leave anything, but we'd love to have you take one with you. That way, if you're going to continue watching by live stream uh, up north, wherever, you can do that and follow along in the same journal. Uh, we find them very helpful and useful. So they're, in the, they're on the, in the back as well. Thank you for being here today. And we're not done. The service ends, but the man, the fun just begins. I've got cornhole boards in my truck. I'm going to bring out. And if anybody else has cornhole, bring it out. Let's have some fun and let's have some wonderful fellowship as the body of Christ today. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for this time. And we pray that you just bless each and every person who's here today, bless them from the crown of their head to the soles of their feet. May they experience your love and your grace. Oh, Lord, may they experience your acceptance, that you love them, your, you desire to move in their life, and may they receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.